We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Do you ever feel like you're always on? What do you do when you need a moment to chill? How do you like to hit the reset button to get ready for what's next? These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nothing but nonstop hustle all the time. Work, family, friends, a million pressing social issues, and an expectation to be on 24-7. Sometimes you just need a moment to turn off and hit the reset button. That's when you reach for an ice-cold Coors Light, the beer that's made to chill. Listen, there's a lot going on in Green Bay right now, and I feel like we could all use a moment to chill with a Coors Light. See, Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's literally made to chill. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. Perfect for a moment to unwind. Coors Light is what I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in their all-new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado, and as always, celebrate. Twenty minutes a day, three hundred sixty-five days a year. This is the Pack a Day podcast. Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 334 of the Pack-A-Day podcast. My name is Andy Herman. I am a writer for Cheesehead TV. Of course, you can always follow me on Twitter, at Scani Sports. I am so excited for today's topics. I think you are really going to enjoy them. I've spent a lot of time researching them, and I have two real big ones that I'm going to be covering. The first is Adrian Amos and his grades from 2018. Of course, this has been a major topic of discussion for a variety of different reasons. Uh, of course, HaHa Clinton Dix has made his way to Chicago, Adrian Amos from Chicago to Green Bay, and it has been a major point of contention between Packer and Bears fans, uh, between which safety is better, who got the better value. Uh, I think Green Bay Packer fans have kind of been pretty consistent throughout the process that they thought Adrian Amos has been this really solid safety for Chicago for, through the course of the past few seasons. I don't think that's ever really changed. Well, haha, Clinton Dix, the kind of the, the thought process on him has kind of wavered and certainly gone up and down and ebbed and flowed a little bit. And certainly over the course of the last couple of years, he's kind of lost momentum. And before he was even traded away, I, I think the uh, idea that haha, Clinton Dix was a top safety was out of most Packer fans' minds. And then when he got traded to Washington and struggled in Washington, 
I think that kind of sealed the deal. And, and most Packer fans felt that uh, it was time to move on from him. And, and he was uh, not the safety that he used to be any longer. So uh, I think Packer fans have been fairly consistent along the way. Uh, but Bear fans have seemingly uh, forgot what Adrian Amos had brought to the team. They had always been uh, seemingly super uh, impressed and proud of the way that Amos had played for the Bears until he left for Green Bay. And uh, I think they had also not been uh, a super big fan of HaHa Clinton Dix until he moved to Chicago. So uh, whether or not HaHa Clinton Dix was a good safety or Adrian Amos was a better safety or any of those sorts of things, uh, what I really wanted to do was kind of uh, put my stamp on it one way or the other and, and put my grades on Adrian Amos. So I'm going to go through those grades today. I went and I broke down every single play from 2018 of Adrian Amos, and I'm really excited to kind of go through those grades with you and, and kind of go over what I saw on tape uh, through a total of 2018 and then spend a little bit of time comparing those grades to HaHa Clinton Dix, of course. And then my other topic today is going to be some tra- some roster battles, some training camp battles that aren't exactly created equally. And I'll get into that more a little bit later. But basically what this is, is we kind of have this idea that when a training camp battle takes place, let's say between two safeties who are battling for the last roster spot, for example, that whichever player is the better of those two safeties is just kind of guaranteed that's the one who's who's going to make the team, right? It, their, their play on the field will dictate who ultimately makes the team. And Unfortunately, that's that's not always the case. And of course, if some player is uh, way better than another player, they're probably going to make the team. And we're not talking here like, you know, Devontae Adams has to worry about, you know, Darius Shepard taking his spot on the roster or anything like that. What we're talking about is two very close players in proximity to one another that might have one or two things that could really sway uh, their roster decision uh, in their favor because of a couple of these different factors. So I'm going to get into that a lot more in just a moment. But my first topic of discussion today, of course, is going to be Adrian Amos. So as I mentioned, I finished upgrading Adrian Amos every play from 2018. Now, if you're not familiar with my grading process or exactly what I do, for the past two years, for the Packers only, I have gone back and I've graded every play uh, throughout the entirety of the season, every player, every snap, and given them a specific grade on the play and then calculated them and totaled them up throughout the course of of the season and in fact over the course of the past two seasons. So this is a massive undertaking. Uh, Basically what happens is usually the Packers, of course, play on Sunday, uh, the game tape, uh, all 22. So uh, every angle that they possibly can show that the two different angles, the end zone angle, and then kind of the, uh, you know, all 22 version uh, of the tape, uh, I'm going and I'm watching all of those plays, every player, every time. And a lot of times uh, it takes me three, four, five, up to 20 times on a specific play to grade every single player on that play. And sometimes I'm watching a play over and over and over because I need to understand exactly what the team is trying to accomplish, whose responsibility is what, uh, and in order for me to have a full comprehension and give a grade on a play. So again, uh, game tape comes out on Monday night, and then usually throughout the course of Monday night, Tuesday night, Wednesday night, Thursday night, because of course I have a day job, uh, from about 8 p.m. until about 2 in the morning for four nights straight, I am compiling those grades and then kind of Thursday night, of course, putting together the article and the final finishing touches on the grades as well. So this is a massive undertaking, as I noted. It's a labor of love, and it really sets me up throughout the course of the season and the offseason to discuss all of the different players on the Packers, really comparative to one another, how they've 
performed against players at their similar positions over previous years and then kind of take a look at free agents, maybe give them some grades and kind of compare them to how they did against the Packers over the course of the last couple seasons. So what I did recently is I took a huge dive into Adrian Amos and I did the same exact thing. I basically spent the last couple weeks when I had any free time uh, grading every play of Adrian Amos. And what I do is basically every individual play, it can grade anywhere from a negative two to a positive two. And the vast majority of plays are a plus 0.1 or a negative 0.1 or a neutral 0.0 grade. So I don't want to get into it too in depth or in detail because that's not going to make for a super great podcast is me going into the intricate details of how I grade individual players. Uh, But just know that uh, the majority of plays are going to be a neutral or a plus 0.1 minus 0.1 and huge game swinging plays. Let's say a Brandon Bostic missed onside kick, for example, that would be a negative 2.0 or a heroic play to win the game at the very last second. That would be a positive plus 2.0. But uh, the vast majority are within that very small margin. And uh, you can kind of get an idea for how a player would grade over the course of a season. To give you an example, my highest graded player through the course of 2018 was Kenny Clark with a grade of plus 13.10. And again, that just gives you an idea of what a high grade may be for a really strong player. Uh, A very low player is probably going to grade just the opposite, a negative 10 to 13.1, somewhere in there uh, through the course of an entire season as well. So uh, that just kind of gives you a small idea of how a player may grade. Now, what I finished up with was Adrian Amos through the course of the year with a plus 6.0 even grade. Now, to give you a you know context for that, as I mentioned, Kenny Clark was number one on the Packers defense in 2018 with a plus 13.10. Jair Alexander was second with a plus 7.0. Mike Daniels was third with plus 6.85. Adrian Amos would have come in at fourth with a plus 6.00 as Green Bay's fourth best defender had he put those numbers up in 2018 for the Packers. Now, taking a look at the safety grades, Amos would have easily been far and away the Packers' best safety with that grade with a plus 6.0. Tremont Williams, if you include his corner and safety grades altogether through the year, graded as a plus 1.25. Ibrahim Campbell was a plus 0.65. Raven Green was a flat even 0.00. Jermaine Whitehead was negative 2.65. Josh Jones was negative 2.85. Eddie Pleasant was negative 3.65. Haha Clinton Dix in only seven games was negative 5.95. More on that in a moment. And then Kentrell Bryce uh, was a negative 6.20. So this is a massive upgrade for the Packers. Let's just start there. Kentrell Bryce, negative 6.20 through the course of the season. Haha Clinton Dix, negative 5.95 through just seven games. If you trended that out, if he played the entire season at that same level, that's a negative 13.60. So the difference between a negative 13.6 and a positive plus 6.0 with one player is a huge, huge swing. And basically it's taking your worst defensive starter and make it into your fourth best defensive starter. Now, hopefully, you know, some of these other players, Rayshon Gary, Preston Smith, Zedarius Smith, and those last couple I hope to do grades on eventually as well. Hopefully some of those can have some more positive grades. Hopefully some other players step up, a Darnell Savage, for example. Hopefully Jair Alexander plays even better. So hopefully we see some of those grades improve as well. Maybe a plus 6.0 is only the sixth or seventh best player on defense. That would be phenomenal. But I think Amos actually has the ability to 
even be better in 2019 than he was in 2018. And a couple different things that I want to note here as well. The biggest thing that you can take away from Amos's grades is that he graded in the positive in 14 of the 17 games that he played last year. That's really what you want out of a safety. You know, Haha Clinton Dix and Kentrell Bryce really struggle with this. And to give, you know, credit to both of those players, you would see a plays where they would make huge hits or game-changing interceptions or force a fumble. You absolutely had those plays, especially from Haha Clinton Dix, even last year, even as soon as last year. However, Rule 1A of being a safety is to be safe. You're the last line of defense. You cannot give up big plays on defense. And that is something that Adrian Amos is so incredibly good at, is just making sure that he is in the right place at the right time, making sure that he's taking good angles to the football, making sure that when he has somebody behind him, whether it's an Eddie Jackson or hopefully going forward a Darnell Savage, that he knows he can be a little bit more aggressive. On the flip side, when he's the last line of defense, he knows how to play safe. I summed up Adrian Amos's play in this very specific way. He was totally unspectacular in almost every facet, but he was spectacularly consistent in almost every facet. And I am just so incredibly excited. And I think Packer fans are going to be too, because this is a position over the course of the last couple of years that has caused Packer fans to pull their hair out because it is so ridiculously inconsistent. You would see flashes of play that would make you so excited. And then the next play, haha, Clinton Dix would be getting stiff-armed into the ground uh, when he's supposed to be the last line of defense by Kenny Galladay against the Lions, for example. So I think Green Bay Packer fans are going to love this upgrade and love this transition. And I think this is where some of the Bears fans' take comes in a little bit because I think they're used to seeing him paired next to Eddie Jackson. And if you watch Eddie Jackson, he is a freak. He is so incredibly good. So if you're a Bears fan you know, listening to this, I don't know why, but if you are, I do not hate on your team. And I'm not uh, you know, just this Packer homer that's saying the Packers are great and the Bears are terrible. Man, I watched every play from the Bears defense this past year. And it was so fun to watch. I mean, you talk about Eddie Jackson and Khalil Mack and Bryce Callahan and Akeem Hicks and just player after player who were making spectacular plays. And I was unbelievably jealous about the defense that they had and put together and just outperformed offenses in 2018. But I think what Bears fans need to realize is that Adrian Amos was the perfect safety next to Eddie Jackson to allow Eddie Jackson to go and make a ton of those plays because Amos was so safe. And really, when you've got a Bears team that can get so much pressure up front from Mack and Hicks, just to say the least, when you've got a playmaker like Roquan Smith roaming the middle of that defense, and then when you've got really good corners like Fuller and Amakamura, and at least last year, Bryce Callahan, and then you've got a playmaker in Eddie Jackson to play next to you, All you need is a really solid, consistent player. You don't need another playmaker. You don't need a guy that's going to be high risk, high reward. Just have a guy back there that can clean up the mess in the rare situation that there actually is one. And that's why I hated the transaction for HaHa Clinton Dix. If I were a Bear fan or if I were cheering for the Bears or just as an NFL fan in general, that's the last person that I would want for the last line of defense for the Bears. You don't want the high risk, high reward player. 
And yeah, Ha Ha Clinton Dix is going to have a handful of plays that he's going to make, and, and it's going to be spectacular, and it's going to be great. And I, there's going to be times where I think that pairing of Eddie Jackson and, and Clinton Dix is going to look really imposing and really impressive. But it's also just the the leak that it could spring at any given time. And when you again, when you've got such a solid defense that does everything right, that plays together as a unit, they're a singular team. They're at times seemingly unscorable on. And you've got that, and now you've got a player who just goes rogue and kind of does his own thing and takes bad angles and isn't always aggressive to the football. That was, again, the last player that I would want in that situation for the Bears. And as a Packer fan, something that I would be super excited about seeing, it's it's a specific weakness that other teams can now exploit. And if HaHa Clinton Dix goes back to playing the way that he did even three years ago, back in 2016 when he was a pro bowler, I don't think he should have been a pro bowler when I go back and look at that tape, but he was so much better than he was the past couple years. And uh, I definitely think that if they get him at that level for the value they got him at, that's going to be a really good deal. But when you have Chicago Bears front office personnel coming out and stating that they graded HaHa Clinton Dix higher than Adrian Amos... A couple things here. One, it's just false. Uh, it could be just false. They're just stating it to uh, just say that they got the guy that they wanted. I don't know why you would throw uh, Adrian Amos under the bus like that. It makes zero sense to me. Uh, maybe they were upset that he went to a division rival. Maybe they uh, had a deal on the table for him and he declined to go to Green Bay. I'm not sure what the, the situation or scenario is there, but I don't think I've ever heard of a scenario of a player leaving and uh, the the opposing team kind of throwing him under the bus and saying, well, the new guy we got, you know, we graded as better anyway. It just seems so incredibly odd. And then when you go back and watch the tape, it's it's not close. I mean, it is patently not close. So I love it as a Packer fan that either they're petty enough to lie about it or that they have people in a front office position that either haven't watched enough tape or don't know what they're looking at. And and let me say this, I am by no way, shape, or form the be-all, end-all when it comes to grades, and I will always be the first person to tell you that. And if you have 10 people who grade the the same film, you will almost always get 10 very different opinions. Pro Football Focus and I are usually on the same page, but not always. And uh, I I really like what Pro Football Focus does. And we both look at different things over the course of a year. And they had HaHa Clinton Dix graded very highly through his time with Green Bay last year, which I'll also touch base on in just a moment. But like I said, I'm not the be-all, end-all in grades. But if these two were even close... If it was even uh, in the conversation of one another, I would say, yeah, I could see, you know, it's in the you know eye of the beholder. And, and I could see where one team would take Haha Clinton Dix and say, you know what, that's our type of guy. We want him. We have him graded a little bit better. And uh, he was the player that we wanted in our system. And I would say I would have no problem with that. If it were close, no issue whatsoever. And, uh, you know, and another team saying that they liked Amos more. Great. But the, the tape is not close. This is a player in HaHa Clinton Dix who consistently took poor angles, who at time took plays off, who at times would have no way of playing the ball or knowing where it was going. He wasn't assignment sure. And there were times where I wanted to go back and look at the tape. And there would be things that I was not 100% certain on. And I would touch base with a couple other people. And I'm not going to name names because I, I didn't uh, you know, consult with them to say that I could say their names. But a couple that I trust unequivocally. 
And they 100% agreed that HaHa Clinton Dix's tape was basically trash, uh, especially over the course of 2018 with the Packers, and that he was not playing the way that he was supposed to be. And that is people that, I, uh, you know, at least one of them that I trust much more than I even trust myself. So I don't care what metric you use, and I don't care how you would grade them. If you really sit down and watch the tape consistently, they are not close. And I mean, they are not close. Adrian Amos is consistently, consistently the better player. So uh, if, if you know me at all, I am not the hot takey type. And I go on 107.5 FM every Friday with Marcus Eversall and I break down the tape. And one of the things on my intro that I say is usually it's, uh, you know, somewhere in the middle. The answer always lies somewhere in the middle. It, it, there's always a gray area, right? And I'm not the person to come in and cram something down people's throats because there usually is a gray area. This is the one of the only times ever that I've said there is no gray area here. Adrian Amos is patently better than haha Clinton Dix. The other thing I wanted to say is if you kind of go back to 2017 and even look at the grades there. So again, if you remember uh, Adrian Amos graded as a plus 6.0 uh, this year uh, when I graded him. 2017, you look at the safeties back then, uh, Jermaine Whitehead, negative 0.35, Marwin Evans, negative 1.55, Kentrell Bryce, negative 5.1, and haha Clinton Dix, negative 9.4. Here's the last thing that I want to say here about haha Clinton Dix. I wasn't a huge fan of the draft pick when they initially made it. I thought he had an okay rookie year. Uh, He had, of course, the two-point conversion play in the Seattle Seahawks NFC Championship game, which was an absolute nightmare. Thought he struggled early in his career with being a consistent tackler. Uh, First couple years were okay. He had kind of the breakout year in 2016, made his Pro Bowl, as I mentioned before. Not sure I would have graded him as a Pro Bowler, but he had a really solid season, and he was a plus player for that Packers defense. 2017 was the first year that I started grading everybody on every single play. As I mentioned, I had a negative 9.4 grade on him, and it was a, it was a brutal year. It was an absolutely brutal year for Haha Clinton Dix, and a year in which I thought he unequivocally quit on the team. And uh, if you look back specifically at that Carolina Panther game, if you remember, Aaron Rodgers was out. And uh, he worked his way back from injury so that he could come back for that Panthers game. And if they won out from that Panthers game forward, they would likely have a chance to make the playoffs. And uh, they they went and they played that Panthers game, and it was it was a pretty bad game overall. But Haha Clinton Dix was atrocious in that game, and then he basically shut it down the rest of the season and graded poorly throughout the rest of the year. And I will say this, when they changed defensive coordinators and they fired Dom Capers and they brought in Mike Patton, even though I had a negative 9.4 grade on him and I was really harsh on him and people in, in Packer fandom were pretty upset at the time, at least some of them, because they kept saying, well, he's a Pro Bowl player. He's a first round draft pick. He's been really good. And I'm like, no, he wasn't. He was really bad. He was really bad on tape. And and people did not want to believe it. They didn't want anything to say. But even I said, once Mike Patton was hired, I really wanted to see Ha-Ha Clinton Dix in that new system before I jumped to any real conclusions. Because if you went back and you looked at his tape from 2018, excuse me, from 2017, he played a ton, like 20, 30 yards 
behind the line of scrimmage. And I kind of equated it almost to like a second baseman in baseball who would, you know, play like, you know, eight innings without getting a ball hit his way. And then all of a sudden the game's on the line and he'd get a really bad bounce his way and he'd have to make a play on it to try to save the game or something. You know, he would have times where he would go 10, 15 plays and the ball wouldn't even be by him. And then all of a sudden it would be a really big play and he'd have to go and make sure that he was in the right spot. And it was a really, you know, highly important play at the time. So I just thought that he wasn't always in the best position in 2017. I also felt like he was a little bit of a momentum player. And what I mean by that is when he kind of got in the game early and kind of made a quick tackle and started to get involved, he tended to play a little bit better. And what I also noticed is that when he played a little bit closer to the line of scrimmage and didn't always have to play, again, 20, 30 yards back, again, he looked like a, a different player and he was a little bit more consistent but not enough to make up for his play in 2017. But that's why I was so intrigued. And when Mike Patton came in, I said, I want to see what HaHa Clinton Dix is going to look like in this Mike Patton defense. And then he did not look good. (laughs) And he started off poorly. And uh, again, I had that negative grade on him. In fact, the the negative uh, 5.95 grade through seven games. And here's what happened. Pro Football Focus actually had him as, I think, their second highest rated safety. And like I mentioned earlier, we are usually fairly close on our grades. This one we could not have been further off from. And I always want to get better. I always want to make sure that I'm not missing something, that I don't have a a bias that's playing a part. But remember, these are grades when he was a Packer. So it's not like I went back now that he's a bear and regraded these and said, "Ah, I don't like this guy. He was a Packer and I was excited to see what he was going to be in Mike Pettin's defense. And I had a poor grade. So during the bye week last year, this is a week or two weeks before he got traded. There was the bye week, then he played against the Rams, and then he was traded before the game against the Patriots. Two weeks before on the bye week, as Pro Football Focus had him as one of their highest rated safeties, and I had him with a really low grade, I went and I basically rewatched every play on the bye week for HaHa Clinton Dix, and I posted a huge thread of them. You can still find it on Cheesehead TV. And I reevaluated everything because I wanted to see, was there a bias? Was, was there something I graded incorrectly? And I stood totally firm on what I believed is that he was still playing poorly. Even though he had a couple big picks, a forced fumble, you know, he, was, he, he had some big plays. He was still playing not the caliber of football that I would have expected out of him or wanted out of him. And uh, again, there were still some people who disagreed. My, my post during the bye week was basically just to show the plays. I showed the good, the bad, and the ugly because I know everyone obviously doesn't have time to, like me uh, to go through and, and grade every single play. And I just took the 40-ish plays that I thought were the most outstanding plays, the good, the bad, and the ugly, and said, here, you gauge for yourself. That was my topic of the article. To take me out of the equation entirely. You take a look at these 40-ish plays and tell me, is this a really good safety? Because the rest of the plays, he was mostly neutral. Those 40-ish plays were the ones that stood out. And again, I, I wholeheartedly stood by my grade that he was not playing well. He didn't play well against New England, or excuse me, against Los Angeles, and then he was traded a week later to the Redskins. And of course, I go on Redskins radio that week, and I tell them, I said, hey, the biggest thing that you can look out for here is the fact that pretty much every Packers defensive back up to that point who went to a new team, uh, whether it had been Micah Hyde or Casey Hayward, not exactly Morgan Burnett, but you start getting my point, that went to a new team went and they performed way better. So I said, hey, and Demarius Randall was the other one, excuse me. So, you know, Randall, Hyde, Hayward, all of them go to new teams and all of them play gangbusters. So I said, you know, the, your best thing you can hope for is that it was the, another one of these, you know, si- situations where uh, Green Bay wasn't playing them correctly. They 
weren't playing him in a system that they should have. And he goes to a new system and he prospers. And uh, I said, but other than that, if you go look at his tape, you're not going to like what you see. And I got a lot of flack from Redskins fans that said, no, this is going to be the the game changing defender that's going to get, you know, Washington to the playoffs and hopefully beyond. And lo and behold, he really struggled for Washington. In fact, that same radio station uh, later, uh, just recently, actually, as I was kind of having this same argument with Bears fans, uh, he basically came and said, yep, you were 100% totally right. He was not the player that we expected him to be. And uh, he, you know, they were happy to have him out of Washington. So there have been three fan bases now that I've basically had this conversation on with HaHa Clinton Dix, the Packers fan base, the Redskins fan base, and the Bears fan base. And maybe he plays lights out for the Bears this year. And uh, maybe they get a steal in him. You know, only time will tell. But that's not what the tape has said over the course of the last couple of years. Really quick, uh, going back to Adrian Amos's tape, that's what I wanted to spend the majority of my time on. As I mentioned, he graded positively in all but three games. Two of those three games was basically a net neutral. It was negative 0.15 or less uh, on the negative scale. So uh, those base, those were basically net neutral games. The one difference was week six against the Dolphins. And if you want to go look at bad Adrian Amos, that's the game to look at. And the the, the two big egregious plays here were two uh, kind of quick passes. I know one was to Albert Wilson. I think they both might have been, but I'd have to go back and look. Uh, where it was basically quick plays. Adrian Amos had the chance to tackle him in the open field and he couldn't make the tackle and both went for really long touchdowns because he was the last line of defense, missed the tackle. And uh, it ultimately resulted in 14 points in a game that they would go on to lose. So those were game-changing plays. Uh, This was not a consistent issue for him. Uh, In fact, he was a a fairly sure tackler throughout the course of the season, but two big missed tackles in that game that in, in a way, kind of cost them the game. So uh, a really negative uh, grade, negative, I want to say 2.15 is what I had it at for that game against the Dolphins. Uh, But other than that, really played either neutral or better throughout the entirety of the rest of the season. And if you want to see best Adrian Amos, go and look at week nine against the Bills and week 17 against the Vikings, where he had two really nice games. And I think Another standout aspect of the grades for Adrian Amos is a lot of people just wanted to say, well, Adrian Amos was only good because of Eddie Jackson. Play next to Eddie Jackson will make any safety look good. And, you know, I'm sure there's a portion of that that's true. Eddie Jackson is a phenomenal player, but I think it kind of went both ways. And the thing that I wanted to look at as well is Eddie Jackson missed the last two games in the playoff game. And during those last three games, Amos graded out as a plus 1.95 with no Eddie Jackson. So at least in the the games that I saw with no Eddie Jackson, Adrian Amos graded out just fine. In fact, uh, that's basically a plus two in three games where he was basically plus four in all of the other games combined. So uh, he played really well in those three games, even without Eddie Jackson. And then the the game that kind of stands out at the end, and I think this is where, uh, again, Bears fans may have a little bit time recovering from Adrian Amos and maybe thinking that he's not as good as he was. He did have a couple plays where he struggled against the Eagles. And in a game where it's a playoff game and everything's on the line and Bears fans are rightfully still better that they lost that game, his play in that game might've stood out a little bit. Now I had him as a net positive. He had a huge play on third down uh, to get off the field. He also had a big interception in that game. 
However, key on third down had a play uh, where the Eagles tight end was uh, streaming up the sideline. It was going to be a drop. He made a big hit on the play. He angled perfectly to the ball. He made a huge hit, but it was a helmet to helmet, which was his first one, I believe, of the year. At most, it was his second. I think it was his first, where it was a, a helmet to helmet, 15-yard penalty, and it kept the Eagles drive alive and a drive that they would ultimately go down and score a touchdown which, speaking of which, was a a touchdown in coverage against Adrian Amos. Dallas Goddard ran a fantastic route. They got Goddard matched up one-on-one against Adrian Amos, and uh, Goddard ran a perfect route. Foles uh, threw a perfect pass, and it uh, ended up in a 10-yard touchdown. That was really the only play all season that I had Adrian Amos graded as a uh, fairly decent-sized error in coverage in pure coverage where it resulted in a bad player, a touchdown or a big player, anything like that. That was literally the only one that stood out to me. So there have been Bears fans in, in mentions that, and, and even some media personalities that say, well, he's, he struggled in coverage. That's unequivocally false. And now you do not want him matched up one-on-one in the slot against receivers consistently. That That's not where he's going to succeed. Um, and there's definitely times where he got beat by tight ends where uh, he was either able to make up for it, or maybe there were a couple times where the throw was bad. But for the most part, he held up really, really well in coverage throughout the entirety of the season. And like I said, it wasn't until that very last playoff game where he really got beat and and actually scored upon for a touchdown. So that was one other thing that I really wanted to get to. Listen, Amos, uh, like I said, this last year wasn't a spectacular player, but if you kind of, you know, get to know my grading scale a little bit, it definitely does grade you higher or lower based on explosive plays or big plays, because that's ultimately what usually wins or loses you football games. If you would have told me that Adrian Amos, you know, gave up a couple big touchdowns against the Dolphins because of poor tackling, had the touchdown against uh, in Dallas Goddard in a playoff game, and really didn't have any major game-changing plays. Um, he had a couple interceptions, but uh, even those kind of bounced his way, or he didn't have to really do a ton to get those interceptions. If you would have told me that, I would have said he probably graded either neutral or, or net negative. But the fact that he was so consistent down and down out, whether it be coverage or tackling, taking strong angles, being in the right spot at the right time, whatever it was asked of him to do, he did. And he was so incredibly consistent that he was so spectacular in the minutia that that's how he graded as a net positive. And I think he's so often in the right place at the right time that some of these interceptions are going to start just naturally bouncing his way. I think it's kind of just, it's just going to happen over time because he does so much of the right stuff. And, uh, it, you know, I, I, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe he'll take a little bit of a step back and, um, you know, maybe if all of a sudden he still can't make those spectacular plays, and just his general down-to-down play is even just a little bit lower. Maybe he's all of a sudden a neutral player instead of a net positive player, but still he is going to be so much better than what Green Bay's had at safety over the course of the last couple of years that it's going to be a very pleasant surprise for Packer fans. All right, enough on that topic. I know I already went about 30 minutes on just the first topic, but my last point of discussion today are some roster battles that aren't necessarily created equally. And I'll get to that in just a moment with with one really key breakdown that I think is really gonna gonna pop this out to you. But uh, a few aspects that will always come into play when these roster battles and, and roster decisions are made by the general manager and when it comes to cut down time are age, contract years remaining or controllable years, if you will, the contract number, how much they're set to make, 
special teams value, draft status, and versatility. And if you kind of think of draft status, you know, the second and third round pick or the first round pick is always going to get more leeway uh, than maybe the seventh round pick or the undrafted free agent or a guy they signed off the street, right? So that always kind of plays a part as well. So let's take a look at one that really kind of stood out to me really quick. Of course, the safety position, right? You're going to have probably three players that make the team pretty easy in Savage, Amos, and uh, Raven Green. I think those three are probably fairly good locks to make the team. Who knows what happens with Josh Jones, whether they play him more in that hybrid linebacker role, whether he's on the team, maybe they trade him, maybe they cut him. But let's say that last spot comes down to Mike Tyson and Natrell Jamerson, those two safeties. The easy thing is to say, well, whichever one plays better and maybe has a little bit more value on special teams is probably the guy that makes the team. And of course, if one of those players outperforms the other consistently all throughout camp and is just the better player, yes, they're probably going to make the team. But I want you to look at it this way as well. Mike Tyson is 25 years old. He is on a one-year contract for $645,000. He would be a restricted free agent after the season has no dead money if they would cut him, which is uh, actually probably a bad thing if you actually probably want some dead money because then teams are less likely to cut you. And he doesn't have uh, really any positional versatility. He's not going to play a corner. He you know, probably isn't going to play a ton as a, a nickel linebacker or anything like that. So no positional versatility. And we don't really know much about his special teams value at this point. Now compare that to Natrell Jamerson, 23 years old, so two years younger. He is on a three-year, $1.98 million deal where he's only set to make $570,000 this year, so $75,000 less than what Mike Tyson is set to make. He had 23 snaps on special teams a season ago just in the short time that he was with the Packers, and he has cornerback safety versatility. So if you're talking about a breakdown just between these two players, the first thing that I really want to go over here is age and controllable years. So with Mike Tyson, they have him for two controllable years. He's already 25. Um, Even after this year, while it's controllable, he'd still be a restricted free agent. So they would still have a little bit of negotiating to do. And if he played well enough, that could be a $2 million deal similar to what Geronimo Allison had this past year. Meanwhile, if Natrell Jamerson plays really well, he's still on a super cheap deal for the next two seasons after this one. He's only 23 years old. He's he's not going to be 25 until the last year of that deal, which Mike Tyson already is. My point being here is if all things are created equal, Natrell Jamerson has a much, much better chance of making this team than Mike Tyson does. Mike Tyson actually would have to play probably pretty decently better on special teams and on defense in training camp and in preseason to make the team over Natrell Jamerson. Now, maybe neither of them make it, right? That, that That's not exactly the point here. My point being is that these roster battles are not created equally. And in this specific situation, Natrell Jamerson actually has a significant, significant advantage because of controllable years, age, and contract value than Mike Tyson does. Even that $75,000 just this year alone, that may not sound like a ton, but again, if everything's equal, do you want to pay $570,000 to Natrell Jamerson or $645,000 to Mike Tyson? That is a major disadvantage for Mike Tyson. Same thing, the fact that two more years controllable for Natrell Jamerson, whereas only one on a restricted deal for Mike Tyson, it just gives every known advantage to Natrell Jamerson in that breakdown. Let's take a look at quarterback next. So Tim Boyle versus Deshaun Kaiser. 
And when it comes to age, Tim Boyle, 24 years old, Deshaun Kaiser, 23. So Kaiser, a a small advantage there where he's a year younger, maybe still developing, uh, maybe more than Tim Boyle, probably not a huge difference there. Both of them have two years left on their deal. However, Tim Boyle has a restricted year after that, whereas Deshaun Kaiser would be an unrestricted free agent after that. So Tim Boyle actually has three controllable years left, whereas Deshaun Kaiser only has two. During those two years, Tim Boyle set to only make $1.23 million, whereas Deshaun Kaiser set to make $2.05 million, so $750,000 basically more, or $800,000 more than what Tim Boyle set to make. This year alone, Deshaun Kaiser is set to make 914000 or close to 915000 Tim Boyle only 572000 so a significant savings if they would go with Tim Boyle over Deshaun Kaiser. Additionally, Tim Boyle actually has $4,000 in dead cap if they would cut him. That's not going to come into play. $4,000 is nothing. Deshaun Kaiser has no dead money if they would cut him. So a lot of apples to apples here. Boyle is one year older has one more controllable year, and is pretty significantly cheaper than what Deshaun Kaiser is. Now, from an investment standpoint, Deshaun Kaiser has a fairly sizable investment as the Packers traded Demarius Randall to get Deshaun Kaiser and apparently valued him pretty highly when he was coming out in the draft, almost spending that first or early second round pick on him when they took Kevin King, almost spending that on Deshaun Kaiser, at least according to reports. Meanwhile, Tim Boyle was an undrafted free agent and they have nothing invested in him. If you're looking at it from a cynical standpoint, you could say that if the Packers cut Deshaun Kaiser, uh, that people would be fairly harsh on Brian Gutekunst for trading away a starting safety for a backup quarterback who couldn't even make it more than one year. If they cut Tim Boyle, he has no egg on his face because they invested nothing in him. Now, again, the better player is probably going to make the team, but I would argue outside of that investment that they made into Sean Kaiser that the advantage would lie with Tim Boyle. It's close. They made the investment with Randall, and Kaiser is a year younger, but Boyle is cheaper and has the additional year of controllable value. So I think this one's close, and uh, you know I don't know that either of them have a major advantage, but I would slightly go with Tim Boyle. Of course, I would go with Tim Boyle. But uh, being all serious, in all seriousness, I think Tim Boyle has a slight advantage in the battle there. The next one I want to look at is wide receiver. Jay Kumaro, Trevor Davis, and Jamon Moore. It very well could be that there's only two spots for those three players, and I think this is a really intriguing one. Let's start with age. Jamon Moore has the advantage in age. Only 24 years old, Trevor Davis is 25, Jake Kumaro is 27. You talk about controllable years, Jamon Moore has three controllable years, Jake Kumaro has two, basically one year on a, a contract left, and then he's an exclusive rights-free agent after this year. Trevor Davis is only a one-year controllable player. He is an unrestricted free agent after this year, no matter what happens. So that really gives the advantage there to Moore or Kumaro. Uh, and when it comes to this year's salary, Trevor Davis is also set to make the most. He is $776,794 set to make this year, whereas Jamon Moore only $683,000 and Jay Kumaro only $570,000. In addition, you would have the most dead cap if Jamon Moore was cut. So you would pay $339,000 to cut Jamon Moore. That is a significant cap hit that general managers usually do not want to swallow. When it comes to special teams, it's a little tough to tell here because of uh, you know some of the injury issues and how uh, how many snaps you know each player played and was active through the course of the last season. But last season, uh, Jamon Moore had 148 special team snaps. 
Trevor Davis the previous year had 171, whereas Jake Kumaro only had 74 last year. I think it's safe to say that all three players have value on special teams in a, in a variety of different ways, but of course the big special teams value here is with Trevor Davis, not only as a gunner, but by all accounts, he was a very solid gunner when he was uh, healthy in 2017, but also as a returner, whereas Jamon Moore and Jake Kumro don't bring that return value. So that could give the edge to Trevor Davis a little bit there. When it comes to investment, Jamon Moore, a fourth round pick, Trevor Davis, a fifth round pick. However, uh, that was, you know, four years ago now under the Ted Thompson era. So maybe not quite as attached to Trevor Davis at this point, whereas Jake Kumro had absolutely zero investment. So when you look at age, advantage Jamon Moore. Controllable years, advantage Jamon Moore. Uh, salary, advantage Jake Kumaro. Dead money, advantage Jamon Moore. An investment, advantage Jamon Moore. Special teams, probably advantage Trevor Davis. Overall, I think Jamon Moore, you can make a strong argument, has the best advantage of all three of those players, probably followed by Trevor Davis and then Jake Kumaro. The fact he's 27, only on the one-year deal, he is the exclusive rights free agent next year, no dead cap, no investment, and probably the worst special teams player of the three. Uh, I think that could ultimately be a deciding factor if it does in fact come down to those three players, unless of course he plays well above average, just flat out as a receiver. Next one's interesting as well. Tight end, Robert Tanyan versus Mercedes Lewis. This one is really not exactly close. You would think that Mercedes Lewis probably has the advantage here, maybe just straight up on uh, you know experience and run blocking and all those different sorts of things. And I think there's a really good chance both of these tight ends make the roster, but let's say it comes down to one of these two players. Robert Tanyan is 10 years younger than Mercedes Lewis at 25 years old, whereas Mercedes Lewis is 35. Both of them are on one-year deals. However, Tanyan would be an exclusive rights-free agent after this year, so they have two controllable years with Tanyan, whereas only one controllable year with Mercedes Lewis. Lewis is set to make $2.1 million, whereas Tanyan is only set to make uh, $570,000, so significantly less than what Mercedes Lewis is set to make. Lewis would have a $500,000 dead cap hit, and Tanyan played way more on special teams last year with 191 snaps in comparison to Lewis's only 74. So all signs here would point to Tanyan if it ultimately came down to these two players and all things were equal on the field. One other thing I really want to point out here is let's say it does come down just to these two players. One of the things that you have to look at is that dead cap value. So what I want to say here is if Mercedes Lewis was the choice, you would pay $2.1 million for Mercedes Lewis. And I apologize for the math here. I know math doesn't always play great on podcasts, but basically you would pay $2.1 million to Mercedes Lewis. You would not pay anything to Robert Tanyan if you cut him. So that is a net $2.1 million to keep Lewis and to move on from Tanyan. On the flip side, if you were to keep Tanyan and cut Lewis, you'd pay $570,000 for Tanyan also, you would pay the 500000 dead cap for Mercedes Lewis. So by keeping Tanyan, you're basically paying $1,070,000 to keep Tanyan and cut Lewis. So $1,070,000 to keep Tanyan or $2.1 million to keep Lewis. So it's a really interesting scenario where you really have to play all of those aspects out when you're comparing the two players like that. And those are all the things that go in the decision when Brian Gutekunst makes those final decisions on who stays on the roster and who ultimately is cut on final cutdowns. 
Next up is fullback. Probably not one that a lot of people have spent a lot of time thinking about, but Dan Vitale and Malcolm Johnson are two players who are battling for that fullback position. And I think this is an interesting one where you can actually make a case that Malcolm Johnson is maybe a little bit ahead here, at least from a salary cap and controllable year standpoint. Dan Vitale is 25 years old, where Malcolm Johnson is 26. So a slight edge for Vitale there. But Malcolm Johnson has a two-year $1.38 million deal left, whereas Danny Vitale is one year seven hundred twenty thousand and then becomes an unrestricted free agent. So Malcolm Johnson has those two controllable cheap years and he only makes $645,000 this year. So significantly less than the $720,000 that Danny Vitale is supposed to make. Neither of them have any dead cap. And while Danny Vitale did pay, play 81 snaps of special teams a season ago, you would have to think that Malcolm Johnson would have the same ability to do something similar if put in a similar role. So if Vitaly again is the better player, no questions asked, but I think Malcolm Johnson has an advantage here if everything ends up created equal. And this is where you start looking down the line and start saying, if there's some, you know, maybe roster decisions on that 53 that you didn't see coming, like right now, nobody's talking about Malcolm Johnson making the team as a fullback, right? But if all of a sudden he's somewhat similar of a player to Danny Vitale, you can make the argument that it makes more sense to keep Johnson because he's under contract uh, with a cheaper contract and has those two controllable years, whereas Vitale only has the one. Next, I want to take a look at interior offensive line. And there's a lot of different players here that we could really discuss. And I want to take a look at four in particular. And that's Alex Light, Lucas Patrick, Cole Madison, and Justin McRae, because they really run the gamut of how many years left they have as controllable players, as well as their salary cap hit. So you start off Alex Light, 23 years of age. You then have Cole Madison at 24, Lucas Patrick at 25, and Justin McRae at 27. So McCray, a significant, significant disadvantage by being an older player than the other three. As far as controllable years go, Justin McCray has two years left, one year plus a restricted free agent year. Cole Madison has four years left. Lucas Patrick has two, one year, and then a restricted free agent. And Alex Light has three, two years, and then a restricted free agent. As far as salary cap for this year, uh, by far the lowest is going to be Alex Light with 571000 followed by Cole Madison with 576000 You then have Lucas Patrick with 645000 and Justin McCrave with 646000 So nobody's making an exorbitant amount of money here, and it's all within about $70,000 of one another, but that could always play a part. From a dead cap standpoint, that's the big advantage that Cole Madison has here. So not only is he the second youngest, but he also makes the second least, and he also has by far the biggest cap hit with a $243,000 cap hit. If you cut Cole Madison, you pay $243,000 to not play him. Meanwhile, Justin McRae, zero cap hit. Lucas Patrick, zero cap hit. And Alex Light, only $2,000 cap hit. So Cole Madison, big advantage there. Let's talk about special team snaps. Lucas Patrick, advantage there. 95 special team snaps a season ago. Alex Light, only nine. Justin McCray, only 51. Cole Madison, we just don't know. He, he didn't obviously play last year, so we're not exactly sure what type of special teams impact that he might have. Versatility. Alex Light, we think, can play left guard and right guard. He's also been practicing at right tackle in practice. He played left tackle in college, so a lot of versatility there. I wouldn't put it by him to be able to play center either, so that's a huge advantage for him. Lucas Patrick, left guard, center, and right guard in the NFL so far. Uh, He has not played any tackle. I think he's basically just an interior player. 
Cole Madison played right tackle all in college, but has only played guard in practices so far. I think he may have practiced a little bit at center. I could be wrong on that. And maybe he could play some right tackle in a pinch, but he's probably more of a guard at this point. Whereas Justin McCray has played everywhere on the line, but center in an NFL game. So some advantages there. But I think definitely when you look at this, Cole Madison has by far the biggest advantage. They invested a fifth round pick in him. He's only 24 years old. He has four years of cheap, cheap, controllable years. He has 243000 in dead cap, and he can probably play left guard, right guard, and right tackle. So I think he has the biggest advantage. I think Justin McCray is the most behind the eight ball. 27 years old, one year, 646000 He's a restricted free agent after this year. No dead cap if you cut him. Hasn't played a ton of special teams. So I think he's probably the one that's behind the eight ball if all things are created equal. You could probably make a case against Lucas Patrick as well. Again, same thing, 25 years old, one year, 645000 restricted free agent. He has played a little bit more special teams. And of course, if you're familiar with it, he's been playing that... Uh, you know, wing position on uh, kick returns, which nobody knows why he's been playing there. That was a Ron Zook thing. So he might even play less special teams this year. So I think advantage Alex Light and Cole Madison and disadvantage to Lucas Patrick and Justin McRae. A couple more left uh, at edge player. You've got Kendall Donerson and Reggie Gilbert. And I think this is a really intriguing one. So both of them are on one year, $570,000, $570,000 deals, complete apples to apples. They're both exclusive right free agents after this year, complete apples to apples. They both have zero dead cap hit. Again, totally exact same through and through. The difference here, Reggie Gilbert, 226 special team snaps a season ago. That's a huge advantage for him. Kendall Donerson, only 23 years of age, whereas Reggie Gilbert's 26. They also have invested nothing in Reggie Gilbert other than time, of course, and and coaching. Whereas Kendall Donerson, they did invest that seventh round pick and Donerson has the much higher athletic upside as well. So if all things are created equal, I think Kendall Donerson has a huge advantage here being three years younger and having that seventh round pick and having the higher upside overall but Reggie Gilbert has that special teams value. So that's where he could make his name and probably just, you know, against each other, Gilbert's been probably the better player so far, but that's another interesting one to keep an eye on. And lastly, let's take a look at the roster battle between Sam Ficken and Mason Crosby, one that people should really be keeping a closer eye on. Mason Crosby is 34 years old, whereas Sam Ficken is only 26. That is a pretty significant eight-year age gap where Sam Ficken still is probably in the prime of his career if he can show that he's a consistent kicker and has a lot of good kicking years ahead of him. Heck, Adam Vinatieri is what, 50 years old, somewhere around there. So Sam Ficken could still be kicking for a very long time in this league. The big kicker here, no pun intended, is the fact that Sam Ficken is set to make only $495,000 this year, whereas Mason Crosby is set to make $4.85 million. In addition, Crosby only has one year left on his deal before he becomes an unrestricted free agent, while Sam Ficken is an exclusive rights free agent after this year. So they would have two years of super cheap kicking if the two are in fact close enough to be competitive with one another. No dead money for Sam Ficken, while Mason Crosby has $1.25 million in dead cap. So that means that kind of going back to that Robert Tanyan scenario before, it's really like you'd be paying Sam Ficken $1.75 million, whereas Mason Crosby $4.85 million. You would still save $3.1 million, in fact, over $3.1 million, if you would go with Sam Ficken over Mason Crosby, and that is a significant savings. 
And as far as capital, you know, they haven't put anything into Sam Ficken, but they put a sixth round pick into Mason Crosby, what, you know, a decade plus ago. So it's not like they're really holding on to that being like, well, we put a sixth round into him a decade ago. We got to hold on to him. It's just simply not the case. So this is a really intriguing battle. And I think the big thing here is age controllable years and how much money that they're both set to make. And they would gain a lot of cap back by cutting Mason Crosby. They would have more controllable years and Ficken is a much younger kicker. And Mason Crosby's coming off a year where he struggled. So that is definitely one that I think you have advantage Sam Ficken if all things are created equal. My big point here wasn't to necessarily say that Sam Ficken should make the team over Mason Crosby or the fact that Kendall Donerson should make it over Reggie Gilbert or that Malcolm Johnson is set to make this team. It's, it's not any of that. It's just to point out that at the end of this offseason, when Brian Gutekunst makes his final decisions, it is not simply as simple as just saying which one was just the flat out better player. And like I said, if one player is significantly better than the other player, that player's probably going to make the team. Or if they have way more special teams value, that player's probably going to make the team. But if things are fairly equal, and I kind of go back to that Mike Tyson, Natrell Jamerson uh, situation, if that's even remotely close, it's going to go to Natrell Jamerson because he's under a smaller contract for more controllable years as the younger player has higher upside, has played special teams, more positional versatility, etc. Every single advantage you could have in that situation goes to Natrell Jamerson. So every roster battle is not created equally. And that's really what I kind of wanted to get across today. And some of these situations may not even ultimately come into play. Maybe some of these players both make the team. Who knows what happens with injuries? Maybe none of them make the team. We simply won't know until the end of training camp. But again, the big takeaway here is that I wanted you to know that it's just not always as simple as which player is always better on the field, which one played better in preseason or in camp, etc. There are other factors that absolutely go into those decisions. Lastly, I wanted to give a huge thank you to Ticket King for becoming our first sponsor. Definitely keep an eye and an ear out for some very special promotions in the coming weeks from Ticket King and as we go on throughout the season. We are so incredibly happy to be partnering with them for the upcoming year. Please support the podcast by also supporting Ticket King for all of your ticket needs. If you are in need of or are looking for Packer tickets, go to Ticket King. They will take care of you. We will have promotions coming up. Uh, so definitely, again, keep an eye and ear out for that. But you can go to the t- theticketking.com. That's T-H-E ticketking.com for all of your ticketing needs. Don't get screwed over by other ticketing companies. You are going to want to go to the Ticket King. And like I said, support us by supporting the Ticket King, and we would greatly appreciate that. Tomorrow, we are starting a brand new series as Dan, Matt, and Janelle kick off by breaking down the top 10 quarterbacks that Green Bay will face in 2019. We're going to go position by position and kind of go over some of the real key players that Green Bay will be seeing at each of those positions in this upcoming year. One of my favorite things always to look at is who are those high-end players that Green Bay is going to have to prepare for and play against. If you look at the beginning of the season, some of those huge edge rushers, they're going to look at very early in the season. So you want those offensive tackles to be ready to play as the season kicks off. But we'll take a look at quarterbacks tomorrow with Dan, Matt, and Janelle, and then we'll go position by position as the week goes on. So keep an eye out for that as well. That does it for me today. I hope you enjoyed my breakdown of Adrian Amos and some camp battles that you'll want to kind of keep an eye on as the season goes on and some that maybe aren't exactly created equally. Thank you so much as always for listening. Really always appreciate it. But until next time, and as always, Go Pack Go!
Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring podcasts on the Blue Wire Network. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System yet, then you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. Wherever you are across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE System technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unified, U-N-I-F-Y-D, healing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system.